Good afternoon. We're joined once again by Simon Elmer. Uh, we're going to continue a discussion of his excellent book, right, The Road to Fascism. Right, uh, this is a critique of the uh, global biosecurity state. We covered about the first half of the book in the last interview, and we're getting to a point where um, uh, the book starts to look at uh, events um, worldwide, obviously. It's about a global biosecurity state. Uh, and this takes us to the, um, uh, the uh, Canada of Justin Trudeau. So I've got a little uh, quote from the book and then we'll, we'll, we'll go across to, to Simon for his comment. Uh, so Simon writes, um, A far cruder use of woke ideology was demonstrated to the world when Justin Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada and global champion of neoliberal diversity and inclusivity, who in June 2020 had taken the knee at uh, Black Lives Matter protest in Ottawa, Variously described protesters in the same city against his vaccine mandates in January 2022 as right-wing, violent, hate-filled, disgusting, extremists, vandals, thieves, abusive, intimidatory, anti-vax, anti-science, racist, anti-black, anti-Semitic, uh, Islamophobic, homophobic, transphobic, misogynistic and an insult to truth and a fringe minority with unacceptable views who should not be tolerated. As confirmation of which he sent in armed and armoured mounted police and counter-terrorist paramilitary supported by Amon Cars to assault, arrest and imprison them. Later he declared to the Canadian Parliament that any MP who stood with the truckers was standing with the swastika. Trudeau evoked emergency powers to freeze the bank accounts of anyone who supported the protest. Um, Simon, welcome back. Um, can, can you maybe expand on your thoughts on Matters Canadian and uh, the conduct of Mr Trudeau? Yeah, I was speaking to someone yesterday actually um, in an interview in, in Canada. She was talking about how difficult it was for her to <clears throat> forgive the people who were party to the level of hate which you've just described, I, I described and you've quoted me describing, coming from obviously not just the mouth of uh, Justin Trudeau, um, but of those those counter demonstrations which were organised against um, what was called the, the, I think it was the Freedom Convoy, wasn't it? <clears throat> which was organised by truckers, um, that is working class people and their families, um, who were non-compliant with the so-called the, the gene therapy mandates which were being imposed on them um, in contravention of their human rights under all sorts of international laws, inclu including that of Canada. Um, and she was sort of saying, you know, it's very difficult to, to kind of sit down really and, you know, be with people who you know were quite willing to see you, not just individuals, but large proportions of um, Canadian society as they were over here, to see us um, banished from society, anathematized, I think is the religious term, isn't it? Um, <clears throat> and far worse than that, actually, to be, to even to be locked up in jail eventually. Uh, certainly to have our human right progressively taken away from us. I mean, I chose that quote and I think I remember I've, I kind of tracked down uh, a footnote for every single one of those ludicrous insults. 
um, that Justine Trudeau made over the course of several months, um, which led up to this appalling level of violence, which we saw in those kind of amazing images, wasn't it, kind of in the snow in Ottawa um, and across Canada, where you had these extraordinarily violent um, paramilitaries, they looked like. It's very difficult nowadays to tell, tell the difference between you know, a regular policeman and a paramilitary and indeed a, a military man. Um, but they were very um, tooled up, I think is the expression, isn't it? And they had kind of armoured cars um, using all sorts of, you know, undisclosed kind of weapons um, who went in and just kind of, you know, charged, basically. Um, it was like something out of, um, well, out of despotic times, wasn't it? It was out of fascist times. It was actually that, I think. It was that series of incidents in Canada backed up what was going on elsewhere in the world that made me think, as I think I've said before, I said, well, if this isn't fascism, what is it? It seemed to be have all the hallmarks of fascism. Now, the fact, I think what's most interesting about that, we've talked a lot about the woke stuff, so I don't really want to go too much into that. Um, the fact that the insults were out of the handbook of woke, um, uh, the, all these isms and stuff which are used to, <clears throat> not only to insult people, but to, to banish them, if you like, from consideration, to, to push them outside of... Um, uh, their human rights to withdraw to with, to remove those human rights from them, but the interesting thing was I think the most important part of that, and which um, justifies us describing this as the ideology of fascism, is that Justin Trudeau didn't stop short at you know insulting this very large so-called mi minority of uh, Canadian people, um, and even if they were a minority, that doesn't mean he can take their human rights away from them. He then declared a state of emergency. Um, which effectively, well, it did, um, disbanded Parliament and allowed him to evoke emergency powers um, to address what he called this civil unrest, which was actually simply a protest. <clears throat> it wasn't simply a protest. It was uh, much more serious than that because what they were protesting against and for was the restoration of their human rights um, under Canadian law and under international law. And once that state of emergency had been declared, um, a whole lot of other things happened, which I don't think we've seen before, and which we're going to see in the future under different powers, which won't necessarily be emergency ones. And that is, um, um, what's her name? Justine, um, sorry, I can't remember her name now. Friedland, the, uh, the, she's the deputy prime minister, isn't she? And she's also the, um, I think she's the minister for finance. She also sits on the board of, um, board of directors of the World Economic Forum. Um, she said, she, she, started to suspend the bank accounts of not only participants in the protest, but of um, companies who um, owned the trucks that they were using, um, of, um, I think also of insurance insurers of the trucks and of the, of the businesses of these truckers. Um, and this was kind of extraordinary level of powers, but they, also, they were obviously, I think in a way, kind of testing what is going to be capable, um, not under emergency powers, but under a permanent state of emergency, when we when they introduce central bank digital currency? That's precisely the way that a programmable form of central bank digital currency, which is in the course of being implemented across the West, across the world, in fact, um, will be able to be used, as it says, as the Bank of England says, not only to encourage and to implement public policy, but also to prohibit or discourage prohibits probably more exact, um, types of behavior which the state regards as antisocial. And you can imagine them wheeling out 
when the people sort of say, well, what kind of behavior do you want to prohibit through central bank digital currency? I imagine they'll have a list of behaviors or attitudes or simply people, which matches up very closely with what Justin Trudeau used before he, he did the same thing to the, to the bankers. So this is why we've talked about this before. Woke ideology is not... Um, misguided. It's not um, people trying to you know, make the world a better place and maybe getting too zealous about it. It is the ideology which prepares the public and indoctrinates people into extraordinarily levels of authoritarianism, um, which thus far have been enforced on the justification of a permanent state of emergency, which of course is how fascist states are um, are ruled, you know, the Third Reich to take the most extreme between 1933 when the Nazi government got in and um, the defeat of the Third Reich in 1945. Germany didn't have a new constitution. It didn't change the constitution of the Weimar period before that under the Social Democrats. It simply suspended it under a, a uh, three times renewed state of emergency. This is what we're kind of living under at the moment. But when central bank digital currency is implemented, there won't be any requirement for a state of emergency. We will live in a permanent state of emergency, when through not laws, not through regulations, not through emergency powers, but through the technologies of the global biosecurity state, of which central bank digital currency is one, will be able to take those rights away from us. This is a, a very good point indeed. And, and we see elements of this uh, being rolled out now, even without central bank digital currency in the uh, ESG, env Environmental and Social Governance. So if you run a company and you would like to have access to funding uh, to credit for your company, uh, you have to comply with a particular political agenda. And if you're, if you're marked down, then the cost of your debt goes up. Or maybe it wouldn't be possible to find funding for uh, uh, your, your normal operating uh, requirements at all. And you'd be driven into uh, into a crisis due to uh, liquidity. Um, this is a sort of stick that is particularly concerning. Not not just for those with a religious bent, because memorably in in uh, Revelation thirteen, I'll quote it here, um, uh, talking about the people who. Uh, essentially worship the beast, the beast being an, an evil empire, and that, and that no man might buy or sell, save they had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. So the idea that there's a coercion, that you're either compliant with the state or you're excluded from normal economic life, which is only one small step from being excluded from life, uh, particularly in a severe climate like Canada, um, it, it is is, a, is something that's that's long been recognised. Now, one of, we've we've talked about this before in terms of the, um, the 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 strange link between the left, which is meant to be challenging the status quo, challenging authority, pushing back against the man, against government, against against power. No longer being that, there is um, the question as to how much there's an overlap between socialism and, and the sort of fascism we're now seeing, how much they're linked. Um, 
I've always felt that it's actually a, it's quite a strong link. You look to the background of Mussolini; he's, he, he's a communist. He came from the left. Um, there was the, the National Socialists in Germany absolutely were socialists, not in the Marxist bent, but they were socialists for sure. Um, and a lot of the ideology of fascism initially came from uh, from from syndicates and syndicalism, which was essentially trade unionism. On a on a on a vast scale, and on a, uh, in a in a in a way that maybe restricted entry into that um, particular sphere to you know a few chosen uh, groups. Um, so you know, I I always felt there was quite a link there. Now you you've come from a much more left wing position, and 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 you've seen that, but obviously in a different way. How would you say the left today are handling these issues, these issues of freedom and totalitarianism? Well, if you've read my book, you know I, I disagree with that equation of socialism with fascism. Um, I think one of my entire chapters, what is it called? Um, I think it's called Socialism, uh, where is it? Fascism, Neoliberalism and the Left. And I think the, um, the rewriting of history that was done in the post-war period um, under this emerging ideology of neoliberalism, which is traced back, really kind of emerges in the 60s uh, with the kind of the Chicago school boys and so on, um, which traces its, 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 uh, its lineage back to uh, Friedrich Hayek, who obviously wrote uh, The Road to Serfdom, which my book is a kind of a quotation of. I've got a whole chapter where I kind of deal with that, um, with that history and how, um, how Western capitalism after the Second World War um, <clears throat> in a period when the U.S. emerged as um, the great imperialist power is now, even though at the time it was one of two superpowers, and you know the world sort of was divided into these sort of sort of super blocks. Um, it was very important that um, in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, um, the the communist parties of Europe, and particularly obviously the Soviet Union, emerged with enormous. Um, moral standing for having been the primary defeater of the Third Reich. All these years later, after all these Hollywood movies, people still think <laughs> Hitler was defeated by uh, the US. Uh, he, he certainly wasn't. It was defeated. He was defeated. The Third Reich was defeated by the Soviet Union. And we also have to remember that the the resistance in Italy, in France, in Greece, in Germany, even tiny little bit, um, and across the occupied territories of the Third Reich. Because we have to remember that almost the entirety of Europe was, if not under the Third Reich, under um, under fascist governments, puppet governments, and so on. Um, the resistance came primarily from um, communist parties, to a certain extent socialist as well. Um, <clears throat> so the US had to do something. The US, the West, had to do something and try and claim some sort of uh, moral justification for capitalism, which of course is based on making as much profit as possible, um, which is not really the sort of thing that you can kind of say, well, you know, this has a social standing. And one of the things I trace in my book is how um, this complete rewriting of history happened. And I take, I take your points, I mean, we can't really go into this, this is maybe not what this conversation is about. I take your points about um, both, the, uh, both Italian fascism and uh, uh, German Nazism <clears throat> initially had some roots in socialist ideas, um, but it's 
quite clear, I think, that um, the reason that these fascist movements were so supported by Western capital, and despite what happened in, say, something like Spain, it took a very, very long time before um, Western capitalist imperialist countries, uh, the US, UK, France, actually stood up to Hitler, is because fascism was a useful tool to combat the rise, if you like, in communism in, uh, in, in, the, glo- in the global sort of theatre. Um, but certainly after the war, this rewriting happens. And the reason I've written about it is not simply because I'm kind of interested in history, and I'm particularly interested in um, what's, why it is that so many people who've been opposed to the emergence, not the emergence, the, the coup, the political coup, the globalist coup that we're seeing from the beginning, I mean, it obviously begins a earlier than that, but since March 2020, under the guise of the coronavirus crisis and now under the guise of the uh, environmental crisis and so on and so forth, why this is described by so many people as a kind of a return, a kind of a communist coup. There are actually reasonably intelligent people out there who describe um, what is going on as a communist coup. I don't know what the actual justification is that. Do they think that, um, you know, Bill Gates and uh, Mark Zuckerberg and uh, uh, Ursula von der Leyen and, um, uh, you know, Augustine Carstens and all these kind of figures who are right at the heart of, um, you know, the, the, the Western capitalist system, um, finance capitalism, have somehow been suborned by Xi Jinping. I, I don't know what they think about this, but I think, I mean, I was interested in one hand in countering that argument, which I think is kind of ludicrous and silly. And it, it really allows, I think, people to dismiss people who take that line as what do they call them? Right-wing conspiracy theorists, in a way, um, because there's this sort of red-baiting that goes on. But there is a more important point, which you brought up, and that is what has happened to the left. Um, I've written quite a lot about that, especially in my book. And at the end of this chapter, I say, well, given this, given that I think this is a return of fascism, and it's not some sort of communist coup, it's not even some sort of return of socialism, um, why has the left been so complicit in it? You know, we've talked about this a lot. Why is it that... Um, I don't think there's very many, there's no governments in the West that you could in any way describe as socialist, but at least they identify themselves as the left. I I observe the difference between those two terms. Uh, The left is a political position within a parliament uh, or a house of representatives. It's not not an identification of a political uh, political philosophy. But if you think of people like Jacinda Ardern, like Justine Trudeau, the very repulsive Justine Trudeau, or even of Emmanuel Macron, of our own opposition, you know, <laughs> Labour Party, um, in perhaps more more um, socialist governments, I wouldn't even call them that, but let's say socially democratic, say in Spain or something like that. Um, these, I guess, is we talk about the left nowadays, that's what we mean when we describe the left. That's why I kind of think of. Um, why is it that they are so, not merely not resistant to this, as you say, but actually not even complicit in it? They're the cheerleaders, aren't they? It's the places where... Um, the restrictions on our human rights, the programs and soon to be the technologies of the global biosecurity state are being most forcefully um, imposed and enforced. And if, as looks what's going to happen, if we actually get Keir Starmer, who I think is an absolute shining light of the left of what it's become, if we get him in, Uh, in the UK as our Prime Minister. I mean, God help us, it's going to be even worse than the WEF puppet. Because Rishi Sunak is a WEF puppet. Um, uh, um, uh, Keir Starmer is 
you know, he's a member of the establishment, isn't he? So, yeah, your question, I guess the question that brings this sort of historical debate into a contemporary perspective is why has what we call the left nowadays been so complicit in this, been the cheerleader of it? Um, I think there's a number of answers to that. One is that there is, as you say, more than a trace of authoritarianism and centralization in any sort of leftist um, political philosophy, obviously. The idea that the state should take into control aspects of our lives, which at the moment are left within the field of the market, um, is a principle, I guess, of any leftist uh, political philosophy, maybe even of a socialist one, definitely of a socialist one as well. Um, and therefore, when in response to the huge fear-mongering that people faced and still are facing, you know, it's now moved from the COVID moment to the environmental moment, um, people who are scared call in an authority, don't they, to tell them what to do. And not just them, but to tell everyone else what to do. So I think there's a disposition within the leftist imagination. Let's not, <laughs> let's not uh, call it a philosophy, because I think this has gone way past political philosophies. It's simply gone into um, emotive reactions to fear. Um, the left immediately called on the state. And of course, in this country, in most Western countries, most capitalist countries, the state is the administrative body of capital um, to impose restrictions on people. That's one of the things that happened. But I think the bigger, the bigger issue is <clears throat> not simply that people were scared. I think it's because the right from the very beginning, the, the ideology, the propaganda, let's call it that, the propaganda that surrounded the imposition of these restrictions on our human rights was couched in ideological terms which aligned these restrictions with woke ideology, which has been developed over a number of years, um, at least a decade and further back than that in other uh, aspects of it, like identity politics, like political correctness. I think woke is sort of it's around about 10 years old, isn't it? I'm not quite sure. <clears throat> Maybe a little older than that. Um, and it was very cleverly done. You know, I've written an article about this, about the left would obey almost any restriction on their rights and everybody else up to the point of including injecting experimental gene therapies into their children or allowing their elderly parents to die alone in care homes without them seeing them, um, allowing this enormous corporate capture of our functions of the government and the complete erasure of our human rights rather than being called a right-wing conspiracy theorist. So I think Woke has done a number of things. I think Woke is the most successful ideology at capturing um, the civil institutions and the, the field of ideas and practices that make up an ideology of a given country, um, of any political movement since fascism. Fascism did it in a similarly short period of time and with a similarly um, lack of resistance, had more of a resistance because the, uh, the left was much stronger in those days. I think the primary thing the left has, uh, sorry, the woke ideology has done is it has exchanged its values for those of socialism. Whatever you may think of those, socialism did at least have some values, whether you thought that their ideas for bringing those about were, were viable or whatever, it did have some values. And one of those was human rights. One of those was freedom. One of those was resistance to corporate capture. One of those there was a resistance to corruption. These are principles and so on. Woke has somehow managed to reverse all those 
and turn them into their opposites. So <clears throat> I guess the answer to my very long answer to your question, to bring it to conclusion, is that the alignment of this um, complete corporate coup, globalist corporate coup, um, which we're undergoing at the moment, which I've described as a revolution in Western capitalism, couched itself in a terminology, an ideology of woke, which completely and utterly captured the left. Now, we could only could do that if the left has been prepared for that over many, many years. And also because the representatives of the left across the world, not just in this country, are um, mediocre, very, very stupid, um, cowards, and really lacking in leadership. And I don't mean only political leadership, I mean intellectual leadership as well. Um, the sort of people who are held up as, um, <laughs> as um, um, intellectuals of the left are mediocre thinkers. Um, and the left hasn't always had that. Um, it's had many other failings, but at least it's had some thinkers. The left now is at the weakest it's ever been. Um, it's so weak, it's so pathetic, that it is indistinguishable from its opposite. And that's why now we are living in something close to, even though we live ostensibly under a democratic political system, you know, we're still going to have elections. The choice between Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak, between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, the Conservative Party, which is the only choice we got to actually elect a government that's going to get into power, is a difference of personalities. It's not a difference, it's barely a difference of philosophy. It's probably a difference of uh, tribal identities. That's what identity politics is about. It's going to make absolutely no difference to how successful this corporate coup is in colonizing this country. Sorry about the long answer, but it's a difficult question. It is a difficult question. I'm not surprised that it's a long answer, and I thank you for that. There's an awful lot in there that I agreed with. Um, to, to illustrate, I think, why this is such a difficult area, and, and has been for a long time, um, near where I am, in fact, the MP, the Conservative MP for this area at one point, um, back in the 20s, 30s, uh, was the Duchess of Athol. So we're talking about, um, at, well, the, 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 the Duke of Athol has a private army, right? So we're talking about quite well connected. Um, it, he, he backed the right side in the Jacobite uprising, although many of the people on his estates were Jacobites, uh, and he was rewarded with the right to have a private army. So we're talking old school, you know, sort of high Tory, and she was a Conservative uh, MP. Now, she supported the uh, Republican side very strongly in the Civil War in Spain and was christened the Red Duchess and uh, for her support of allegedly far-left far politics, despite being a Conservative MP. Later on, she was one of, I think, six that stood with Churchill against uh, appeasement and um, at the sort of low point in the in, in the Commons, and uh, so she opposed Hitler and all that he did, and um, she was deselected for that one. And later on, she was caught in some sort of spying scandal, trying to do something to impede the uh, interests of Stalin. So what she was was consistently against totalitarianism, and that had her painted in various ways at various times. She went from being the Red Duchess to some, I don't know, right-wing conspir conspiracy theorist. But she actually hadn't moved. She'd stayed still. She'd actually been consistent. Um, 
the the weakness that you describe in the left is an interesting thing, right? Because I I see people, um, and 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 we're talking about sort of new left. When people actually stand up and resist the state, and I'm watching them on the ground, they're a really varied bunch. They tend to be people who believe in something, but not necessarily the same thing. You've got old school leftists, you've got old school Tories, and you've got Christians, and and and, and those tend those are the three main groups, um, and they all come together to resist what they can all see as tyranny. And I think they can see it because they have some principles from which to work, some ground on which to stand. The weakness you describe is really interesting because I see this a lot where um, people who are of the left, of the mainstream, because the main, this kind of soft left is the, is the mainstream now in, in Western society, um, who have always been... In, in agreement with the general zeitgeist, eventually come into some sort of conflict. They, they refuse to accept that a man can be a woman or they refuse to accept um, uh, you know, some other extreme infringement on their rights or, or on reason. And they're, they're, they're rounded on, they're hounded, they're attacked. And I find that a really sad sight because they, they, they actually don't know how to respond. Those of us who have been opposing that sort of ideology for years, you used to getting attached, you used to having uh, views that are not the mainstream and having to defend them. Maybe the way the left at one point, 50 years ago, would have to defend their views, which aren't in the mainstream, and therefore you know what you think and why you think it. And the people who have kind of gone, gone along quite happily, accepted all these infringements on rights, infringements on reason, and eventually said, no, no, I, I, I can't do that. They're then attacked, I mean, with a viciousness that's that's really striking. And because it's, it's their tribe, it's their team, because they've never had to experience this before, they don't really know how to react. And I think they suffer more as a result than than a right winger saying the same thing, who would let the the the, the insults and the barbs kind of bounce off to some extent. Um, and I think it's maybe the lack of opposition, the fact that the background across the political world, across the intellectual world, has accepted this. You called it neoliberal. This the the the, the post-war consensus. Let's call it that. That's become um, unarguable. That's become everyone recognises it as the only way forward. We have the end of history. We've only one way forward. Everyone's on the same page. You must think the same as well. And then when they realise they don't, the, the, there isn't the practice there of defining your beliefs, of fighting for your beliefs, of, of chiseling them out by, by bouncing them off people who believe different things, because everyone believes the same sort of kind of mushy ideology. Do you, I mean, do you think that's it? Is it just 75 years of <laughs> the post-war consensus being accepted that's made the left um, not much fit anymore? Yeah, that, gosh, that's a difficult question, isn't it? It's a very long sort of conversation. Um, I mean, I'm old enough. I imagine we, we both are sort of um, to remember. You know, in, in the days of in the days of Margaret Thatcher's governments, 
Um, I don't think there was much consensus in this country. Um, you know, Thatcher was the one who, to quote this kind of phrase, Tina, there is no alternative, which has very much become the, um, the, the kind of the default position nowadays on everything, isn't it? Um, I don't think there's a politician uh, in Europe or the West at the moment who would think there is any kind of alternative to the economic system we've got. Um, <clears throat> and I think one of the things that I, I think you're right, once Tony Blair got in, <laughs> let's cross ourselves when mention his name. Um, you know, you hear he could take over the WF, couldn't he? He really, he really would find his place in history then, wouldn't he? Um, um, once he came in, you know, Thatcher famously said that he was her greatest achievement. Uh, New Labour was her greatest achievement. But I'm not sure that's absolutely true. I think Thatcher created, let's focus on this country, she created a monster. Um, she was a conservative, I guess. Um, and what she unleashed was finance capitalism in a way. You know, I don't think she wanted to turn the city of London into uh, the money laundering capital of the world. I don't think that was what her purpose was. Um, she who was a Hayekian, she used to walk, walk around carrying one of his books, and she's saying, this is, this is what we believe in. And although in my book I'm very critical of Hayek, there's a lot of things that he says which are correct as well. I think he foresaw the dangers of monopolization coming out of um, uh, finance capitalism. Anyway, um, I think that once Blair came along and you know he, 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 his entire political philosophy of new labor was on very fascist, actually, idea to eradicate class differences and political differences as well. You know, his famous, I don't think it was it him or was it John Prescott of all people said, we're all middle class now. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think anyone outside of North London believed that. Um, but he was such an extraordinarily successful politician. And, uh, you know, David Cameron very openly modeled himself on, um, on Tony Blair. Um, and so did a lot of politicians since, I think. And what Thatcher did and what Blair um, entrenched was that the political system itself, uh, sorry, the economic system itself was unquestionable. There is no alternative. They were all part of a, of a, of a, a global capitalism, and you're either in it or you're out. Um, and since we're, you're either, or rather, you're, we're all in it, but you're either um, profiting from it or you're getting shafted from it. Um, and I think one of the things that did is it moved political opposition itself, which is the basis of the political class, and this kind of illusion of democracy we've got, into the purely ideological realm. Um, and that's where identity politics came from, that's where political correctness came from, that's ultimately where woke came from. Um, to go back to your point about the arguments for this, um, or how you were sort of saying how, I think you're right. I mean, I've, I've, in my own, it's hard to talk about this in any kind of a, certainly in personal terms. I've always been very struck. Um, you know, my organization is Architects of Social Housing. Um, in our sort of campaign work, working with council estates against primarily labor, almost exclusively labor councils who are breaking, uh, wanting to knock down their homes, um, um, you know, sort of socially cleanse the community was the phrase they used, and then build market sale properties in their place. Um, you know, we met a lot of people in various degrees of leftist organisations. Some would be called socialists, some would be all sorts of others. And I was always very struck that there was an assumption that myself and other people in our organisation all shared their values about everything else. There's this. I was talking about this the other day. There's a very strange term that the left uses. Uh, if you get an email from someone on the left, they'll sign it off 
in solidarity. Now, <clears throat> solidarity actually has a meaning. And what it meant is, particularly on the left, where you have so many different factions um, who've all got different political philosophies, different ideas, different memberships, and so on, to get anything done against the far greater economic power, if you like, of the people that are opposing, whether that's a government or a corporation or an institution or whatever, that they drop their differences in order to form a solid base to oppose this. That is what solidarity means. I don't have to agree with you, so we could get we could get communists and socialists and social democrats and anarchists and God knows who else. You can get a few liberals in. Who knows? And have a few, as you said, you know, get a few um get a few Christians in as well. And oppose what it is you're opposing. And that's what solidarity means, that you drop the differences to create a front, a force to resist or to overcome something. Nowadays, that word has become to mean, like so many of these words, the exact, the exact opposite. What solidarity means now, we can see this happening, even though I don't think this has got anything to do with socialism, but you can see it in the Labour Party, that anyone who steps out of line from what is the party line is immediately um, suspended from the party and eventually hounded out of <laughs> left society. I don't really have much care for it anymore at all. I don't have any uh, mixing with uh, what, whatever the left was. And I, I imagine they're all slagging me off on some, you know, um, some website somewhere. Um, but I'm sure the same thing is, is kind of going on with me. Um, I don't really care about that uh, very much. But solidarity has now come to mean towing the party line absolutely. It's come to, most, to mean the most authoritarian types of um, ideological hegemony, the sort of things you saw in the Soviet Union under Stalin or in any other sort of totalitarian uh, political system. Um, and what's happened, what I found very interesting, is that since, certainly since this, is, uh, this, this globalist coup started in March 2020, um, I've formed solidarity with very different people. Um, some of them are from the old left, who see this for what this is. Um, some of them are old school conservatives. And it's been very interesting to me to find out what conservatism actually means to a lot of people who call themselves conservatives. Some of them are Christians. Um, there's all sorts. And we are doing what the left was meant to do, which is to form, to drop our differences and to create solidarity, to oppose what we recognize as being the greatest threat to the freedoms of humanity that we face at the moment. There, is, there are, there are um, precedents for this, historical precedents. When the left very belatedly realized that the threat of fascism rising in Europe in the 30s was very, very serious, and that it had the financial and political backing of Western imperialism. It tried to drop its differences and form things called like a popular front, or a people's front, or a unified front, or so on and so forth. There are various different models of it. By the time they did it, it was pretty much too late. It did bring popular front governments to power in, obviously, Spain, and obviously in France. But of course, as soon as um, Franco invaded um, and tried to overthrow, or successfully overthrow, um, the Republican government in Spain, which he went back to earlier on, um, <clears throat> even though Franco was mili supported militarily by Hitler and by Mussolini, the, French, uh, sorry, the Spanish Republican government found out that it wasn't going to, couldn't rely on the support of the Popular Front government in France, let alone the support of the UK or the USA, and obviously it, it lost the war. So there are precedents to this. I think what we could learn from this history, I think it's always important to try and learn from this history that they want us to forget, 
is that we have to form these, um, we have to enter into a solidarity with each other to form some sort of popular front <laughs> against what we're facing sooner rather than later, because you, there isn't an infinite time span to that. And that's certainly a, a lesson we can learn from this period in the, in the 30s. That's a very good point. Um, the interesting enough, the book that uh, Margaret Thatcher would carry around and, and wave and say this is what we believe was uh, Hayek's uh, Constitution of Liberty, um, a far less well thought through piece of work than uh, his Road to Serfdom. Uh, Road to Serfdom, I thought, was, was, was very good. There were a few compromising chapters in it, but by and large, I thought it was actually a very good book. Um, Constitution of Liberty was hugely compromised and compromising and very um, weak, actually. So I was, I was surprised that was the one she, she chose to waive. But uh, there you go. Um, you mentioned um, quite a few times here the, the issue of totalitarianism and, and, and you, you get to this very much in your book. Um, you quote here um, Hannah Arendt, uh, and uh, she says, the fear of concentration camps and the resulting insight into the nature of total domination might serve to invalidate all obsolete political differentiators from right to left and to introduce, besides and above them, the politically most important yardstick for judging events in our time, namely whether they serve totalitarian domination or not. And this is essentially what you were saying there. We must find, we must find allies where we can, and and we must resist the totalitarian domination. Um, and the and the other things matter much less. You talk at, at some length on the the idea of the camp. Um, would you like to say just just briefly a, 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 to expand on on your thoughts there before we we move on to other things and other. Continents. Briefly. <laughs> um, goodness. Um, we saw the return. I mean, there are. We saw the return. The very um, of camps being used under lockdown, um, under the guise of quarantine camps. Um, most, I guess, publicly in China, where they were building. They have built uh, sort of small towns, really size, sort of five plus five to eight thousand people being um, uh, imprisoned in individual kind of shipping containers um, under the, under the, uh, the principle of, um, um, of um, what is it, a net uh, zero, zero COVID. Um, and you had large proportions of the, uh, um, the population uh, being quarantined, going through a quarantine process under that. Um, but I was also struck that there were very well-appointed and very almost luxurious camps being built in Australia which is, you know, one of the most liberal societies, and these were called quarantine camps as well. Um, um, and anyone who entered into Australia had to reside in them for a period of time. Several people were uh, escaped, young kids and so on, and they were tracked down. Um, <clears throat> whether you even had a PCR-positive test was completely irrelevant. Um, but camps, you know, camps have a very... I think they're kind of at the heart of the Western political system. We know that, you know, the most famous camp in the world over the last sort of years... Have, has been Guantanamo Bay, um, which really exemplifies what the camp is. Um, should try and talk about it briefly. Um, Giorgio Gambon, 
who is one of the, who is the primary philosopher of, of biosecurity, um, contemporary Italian philosopher, who of course has been pilloried and tried and censored and so on, um, when he came out against you know the kind of the COVID lie, um, he says that the camp is the permanent spatialization of the state of emergency. You know, we were talking about that before. Um, when I was looking at, and, you know, as an example of that, when anyone taken into Guantanamo Bay was done, was imprisoned, has been imprisoned, is still in prison there, outside of any legal framework. Um, they haven't been accused. They are there outside of U.S. criminal law, outside of any of the um, international laws on, for instance, treatment of prisoners, on prohibitions on torture, and so on and so forth, and all these international sign- um, uh, laws to which the US as well as other Western countries are all signatories, these all become irrelevant because when you enter into a camp, you enter your you yourself, your body enters into a state you go into a permanent a spatialization of the state of emergency. At which point you are stripped of all human rights, all political agency, you are turned into a biological organism, if you like. Um, and as we know Famously, um, and this was done during the the, uh, the hunger strikes in the Mays prison during Thatcher's time. Anyone who tries to commit suicide through hunger strikes and so on, just as they were um, uh, in the in the prisons in, in Northern Ireland, um, as they are in Guantanamo Bay, they are full threat through through tubes and so on. So they don't even have power over their own you know life and death. In my chapter, very briefly, what I thought when I was thinking about the camp and what Agamben was saying, that the camp is created or comes into existence when the state regards it as its duty and its right to take the biological existence of its citizens under its care. That's clearly what was happening in China. That was generally what was happening across the West. Um, in this country, I don't believe we have camps. Of course, we have, we have um, immigration camps and so on. Um, but what I did in my book is I, I thought, what is the real model for the future camp, the camp of the global biosecurity state? And I thought the real one was the Gaza, the Gaza Strip. In, in Israel. Um, the Gaza Strip has got an entire population or a large portion of the population of Palestinians living in basically a, an open-air camp. Um, it's, you know, you're not able to leave it all or, or, or enter it. Um, the amount of food, water, and subsistence materials allowed into the camp um, are measured precisely to be just above the UN definition of hunger. Um, the people in it have absolutely no rights whatsoever. Um, and I thought, that's the kind of the model of the camp that we're looking in the future. Of course, that's an extreme version. But the new technologies of global biosecurity, I mentioned before, uh, central bank digital currency, um, we're seeing it in a, in a small microcosm way. It's not really such a microcosm through 15-minute cities. What I believe is going to happen is this phrase that um, Georgia Gambon says, that the camp is the biopolitical paradigm of the state. In other words, the limits of the camp are going to be coextensive with those of the state itself. And everyone in that camp is going to be have the rights, if you like, of an inmate of a camp. That is, your rights to health are going to become obligations to biosecurity. Um, how much food you eat, what you eat, whether you can drive, where you can travel, uh, your freedom of expression, and all these other kind of limitations that we're seeing encroaching on our um, on our on our human rights, our rights of expression, freedom and association, and so on, are going to be monitored, controlled, um, uh, and enforced as they are within a camp. 
you know, I like to try and visualize this. <clears throat> and for me, digital ID is the gateway to the camp. The limits of the camp are going to be central bank digital currency. That's going to be the fence that encloses us. And that fence is going to be coextensive with the state itself. And then within that camp, there's going to be things, uh, if you like, you can see them as kind of areas within it, like um, Agenda 2030, which is going to reduce how much food we can eat, um, how many resources we can consume, um, how much we can travel around in the camp. Um, you know, the, the environmental fundamentalists are quite, you know, so the other day I was looking at, what was it called, Absolute Zero, that report produced um, by the University of Cambridge, and it shows progressively how they're going to reduce um, our, not only our consumption of uh, meat, uh, beef and uh, lamb is going to be completely um, banished, um, but also our use of electricity, our heating of our homes, our freedom of movement, shipping, planes, the whole lot. This is a global control over every aspect of our lives. This can only be done according to a biological paradigm, which is modeled on that of the camp. So what I try and, sorry, this is a very long answer. I'm trying to see how the way that quarantine camps operated, were, were implemented under this state of emergency, declared in relation to a threat to our health that never existed in public health. What they can tell us about the nature of the state which is emerging, the global biopolitical, the global biosecurity state, which a lot of my book is about. And I think it's about blowing it up to from the microcosm to the to the macrocosm. Long answer, but that was a, a very interesting answer. The um, the camps we saw in Australia, which of course people were forced to pay for whilst being imprisoned, and they would still be pursued if they escaped, you know. So it was on one level well, you know, it's a hotel. Um, and I, I was speaking to some some friends uh, who, who had emigrated to New Zealand. We're talking about a similar sort of thing. And when they went to New Zealand, they were the radical ones, and I was kind of conventional engineer. And they've gone to New Zealand, and they had um, all the radical views have kind of been, they found, uh, well, I'm at home because the government shares all my radical views. And they were saying how um, benign this whole system was, that they would love to be quarantined because it's just a giant hotel stay. It's just lovely. I, and, and they couldn't see that there was a sinister side to this. They just all wouldn't see there was a sinister side to this. Um, so, yeah, a camp, but a camp where people can convince themselves that it's, that it's, that it's fine because superficially... If you look at the, if you don't think about it, if you look at the, um, the, 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 the standards of living, it will look familiar enough that uh, it won't trigger um, too many alarm bells because it won't be an austere camp of the model of the gulags. It will be a more luxurious Western version, but your liberties will be just as gone. Uh, so... M moving on, you you get to kind of really one of the kind of heart points of the book, the the, the actual core ideas where you're talking about the new totalitarianism. Now, at one point, you quote, um, uh, you quote uh, uh, Kant quoting Acts uh, five twenty nine. Um, that the quote is. Uh, that uh, we should obey God rather than men signifies merely that when men command anything which is in itself evil, 
directly opposed to the law of morality, we dare not and should not obey them. And, and this was, I thought, absolutely central to what we've been through in the COVID-19 crisis and all that went with it. That message, that message is vital. That message was lost to almost all of the people in Great Britain, almost all of the people in the West. A few brave souls spoke out and slowly, one by one, people have been realising they were right. This idea that your, your rights are conditional, the, the Parliament can take them away. I've had this conversation with a police officer in Edinburgh. Parliament can take away anything it wants. Your rights are conditional. So you have, yes, you have you have a right to, to assemble, but it's a conditional right. And right now the condition is you can't do it. So we're going to arrest you. Right. The, this acceptance by that police officer of evil, the acceptance of the parliament of evil, the acceptance of all of our institutions of evil was really stark and really, I think, a wake-up call. Um, so, um, before I give you a longer quote, would you like to say a few words about the, no, the new totalitarianism? I've got a, a longer quote from your book, which I think puts it very well, but I'll let you get a, a word in edgeways here. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, maybe I'll just comment on what, what you said about the Kant quote. That, that, was, the, that was the source. I, I think we may, might have mentioned this before. Hannah Arendt went to the trial of Eichmann Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem. Adolf Eichmann being, of course, one of the great implementers, if you like, of the um, the massacre of the of the uh, if you want to call it the Holocaust, I like to call it the Shoah during the the, uh, the Second World War. And under interrogation, he he quoted <laughs> uh, Kant, uh, Immanuel Kant, the German idealist philosopher, and his categorical imperative that as a soldier um, who had sworn obedience allegiance to Adolf Hitler, as all members of the SS and indeed all members of the Wehrmacht had to, um, he was obliged to obey every order. And his highest imperative was obedience. And um, Hannah Arendt, as a, as a German philosopher, was kind of outraged by this. And in the, an interview, she came up with her, her famous saying, Kein Mensch hat das Recht zu gehorchen. No man has the right to obey. It's a very interesting phrase, I think. Um, she doesn't say everyone has the right to disobey, which is a kind of a kind of an anarchist position, and which simply means the law doesn't exist, which might appeal to anarchists, but it doesn't when someone's got more power over you. She says no man has the right to obey. And I thought when I read this, because I was reading this book, um, <clears throat> when I was, I was reading a lot of Arendt uh, under lockdown when I was writing this book, um, it really struck me that <clears throat> that kind of picture that you painted um, of conditional rights. I'm very interested in the law. Um, I'm not a lawyer myself, I'm not legally trained, but I read a lot of legislation because of what I do as the head of research for my company. And I'm also, I'm, I, I kind of keep up with changes to the law. And of course, when the vast number of new regulations were made under lockdown, um, you know, 582 coronavirus justified regulations, 537 of which, um, and the most serious ones, came into effect before they were even presented to Parliament. And Parliament, anyway, just ratified them afterwards. Um, and as you said, what happens when the law takes away your rights? Um, now, 
what happened, what Kant, uh, sorry, what um, what uh, uh, Adolf Eichmann said is, it's not for me to make a judgment on that. I obey the law, the law of man. Kant's point, which he quoted there, is that simply because laws have been made, that doesn't mean they're right. And you cannot give up your judgment as a human being. Um, and one of those judgments is, for instance, um, <clears throat> it has to be rational. If you say that anyone can kill anyone else, um, or I have a right to kill anyone, that also means someone has the right to kill me, which is going to lead to total anarchy. If you, if what we saw happened under the lockdown in this country and across the West, the laws were being made without any kind of democratic oversight, without any uh, scrutiny by our elected representatives, failed as flawed as that process is, and they were simply made by one man, mostly by Mr. Matt Hancock, someone I wouldn't trust to look after my cat, let alone, let alone the, uh, you know, the, the medical industry in this country, was making laws which were stripping us of our rights at such a rate that the police couldn't even keep up with that. Um, am I going to say, well, this is the legal process under a state of emergency? Um, or am I going to make a judgment about that? And unfortunately, as you said, most of the people in this country, as across the West, simply, they took Adolf Eichmann's role. They said, it's not for me to choose. My categorical imperative is to obey the law. Those of us who didn't do that took a moral stand. We obeyed, if you like, the challenge, the obligation, which Kant lays upon us, and which is the real meaning of the categorical, categorical imperative, that there is a morality which is above that of the law. And I think one of the things that bound those of us who oppose this and are still opposing this now is that despite going back to what we were talking about before, despite our political differences or our views of the world or our understanding of what was going on, we all recognized the how Kant puts it, uh, uh, describes it, a command which is in itself evil. And we recognize that the regulations of biosecurity, the enforcement of vaccine mandates or gene therapies and so on, the lockdown, the masking of children, the removal of our rights was, if you want to use these terms, an evil, and we took a stand against it. Now, <clears throat> to go back to your question, maybe I'll just lead in with this and you can come in with your quote. What happens under totalitarianism is people can live under a dictatorship, they can live under a tyranny and still recognize what is good and bad, what is good and evil. They simply don't have the means to oppose it. They can try to oppose it or they can come to accommodation with it, but they do know what is good and, bad, good and evil. They do know that they're living under a tyranny. They do know that they're living under a dictatorship. They simply don't have the means to oppose it. That's not all of them, but a lot of people will. Under a totalitarian system, that distinction between good and evil, I think, has failed. And that's why in this large chapter at the end of my book on the new totalitarianism, I think one of the sections is called, it's about the, it's about the loss of the failure of our morality. Um, Hannah Arendt describes what happens to the German people, which is, of course, our own people under the 12 years of the Third Reich as a failure of morality. The German people kind of failed their morality. And that's what happened to us. Um, People weren't under the oppression of the state. The vast majority of people in this country, as across the West, became spokespersons for the state. They became implementers of it. We completely, as a people, forgot what is the difference between good and evil. Masking children for two years. Do you remember what it was like being that age? A month seemed like a year to us now. To mask them when anyone could tell that these kids were absolutely immune to this so-called novel coronavirus. 
and to subject them to that effectively child abuse for two years was an absolute evil. And yet the vast majority of the people in this country were not only um, okay with that, they were calling for it, they were privy to it, they were implementers of it. And I think the only way to understand that, or the way I've tried to understand that, is that we have moved into a new form of totalitarianism where we're not living under a tyranny or a dictatorship. We are living, we are parties to a, an emergence of a new form of totalitarianism, a kind of a digital totalitarianism. Um, and that's what we're kind of facing now. In your chapter on the new totalitarianism, you, you describe this and the phrase you use is the moral collapse. And you describe the people who were essentially cheering for um, more lockdown, more restrictions, more severe punishments on those who would resist. Um, and then their reaction to when it all suddenly stopped. Um, so you're right. Uh, with the revoking of the cultic practices of the biosecurity state, precisely two years after they were first initiated by the Coronavirus Act, March 2020, um, whose two years expiry date had been written into Section 89 with remarkable foresight, the COVID faithful were having to confront the extent of their gullibility, their political naivety, their susceptibility to manipulation by the corporate media, their ignorance of elementary biology, and like all religious fanatics awakened to rude reality, it wasn't a pretty sight. Belatedly demanding evidence of the medical justification uh, for which they had substituted religious conviction for two years, they were now forced to confront the truth of the lies which the beliefs, uh, on which the beliefs were founded, that their publicly displays of virtue were nothing more than craving obedience to the cynical abuse of power by the so-called, uh, sorry, that the so-called medical measures that they'd slavishly obeyed were nothing more than a demonstration of the extent of their subservience to authority. That the legal enforcement of thousands of coronavirus regulations and the exaggerated punishments for breaking them were the whims of politicians laughing up their sleeves at them at their drunken parties in Downing Street that they'd sold two years of their children's lives, watched their parents die from another room, injected poison into their own veins and that of their family to enable one of the greatest transfers of wealth from the poor to the rich in history, that everything that they had denounced so confidently and with such contempt as conspiracy theories was being implemented with equally an equally contemptuous lack of deception and was now threatening to crash through the windows, the windows of their frightened middle-class world. So this is, I, I, I thought, an excellent um, description of the kind of strange unreality that's taken over post-COVID as piece by piece, every justification that was given for all of the actions over those two years has been shown to be false. Um, there's still um, there's still a strange denial going on, it, and it's and it's an emotional denial. It's not factual anymore. People don't deny the facts. Um, so when you've got uh, a lone brave conservative MP stands up and starts talking about the amount of harm that vaccines have done to people, um, he's called an anti-Semite and he's cast out of the party. Right? It's not a rational response. It's not. No, no, you're wrong. Here's our evidence. No, no. 
it's this, um, it's, it's, it's pure emotion. It's almost, um, it's, it's the way, you talked about a kind of gaslighting. It's, it's the way that, that narcissists substitute emotion for thinking and manipulate people to get a certain emotional feedback and on one level are very calculating, but there's no reason there. There's no, there's no logic, there's no analysis, there's no reasonableness. Um, it's all based on this sort of instinct that you must be wrong because if you're right, then the last two or three years we were all fools. And that, that just can't be faced, so it won't be faced. So I thought that put that particular issue extremely well. Um, I, you've uh, also quoted, I, I, was, I was flicking through the book again just before we came on because I, I first read it a little while ago. Um, and I came on, I hadn't clocked this at the time, but uh, a quote from Larry Fink, chief executive of BlackRock, and I'd probably noticed this time because we were quoting, we, we had Larry Fink on uh, UK Column News uh, within the last week or so saying some outrageous things. Uh, and he's talking about the, the market embrace. We talked about the socialists and the socialism and the leftist embrace of the new totalitarianism. But there's, you, you point out here another side to it. So he's talking about the markets embracing of totalitarianism. Quote, Larry Fink, markets don't like uncertainty. Markets like totalitarian governments, where you have an understanding of what's out there. Obviously, the whole dimension is changing now with the democratization of countries, and countries are very messy, as we know in the United States. In North Africa and the Middle East, we're going to have an uncertain environment for many years until we have an understanding of where this is all going to take us. I find that quite a threatening statement. <laughs> but um, could could I ask you to just expand a little bit about this, um, uh, the, the, the nature of um, the commercial aspects, the big business aspects or, that embrace the, the, the embrace the totalitarianism. They love the control because it's tidy. Uh, I remember reading the um, memoirs of um, uh, of the, the great jet engine engineer, Hooker. Uh, the, the book was called Not Much of an Engineer, because that's what they said to him when he joined Rolls-Royce with a degree in mathematics. Uh, well, you're not much of an engineer. Now, he turned out to be a great engineer. But he went to China at one point, and he saw the various copies of his engines that the Chinese had made. Um, and he was quite impressed by China because it was tidy, it was organised. You know, everyone was neat and standing in rows and things. And he, he, he reacted quite well to this. He didn't sense the underlying threat that was generating it because freedom is messy. Um, Mr Fink doesn't like the mess and there seemed to be an inherent threat that the Middle East is going to be sorted out at some point. And, and will no longer be permitted to be messy. Yeah, the, the, the Larry Fink quote, I think, I think I quote that in the middle of a, um, two long paragraphs describing why I think we're living in a, uh, pre, prior to that, over the last sort of 20 years, that we've been living in a pro-totalitarian um, uh, system of governance. And, and 
Um, and, you know, since since March 2020, they were living in a kind of, uh, definitely living in a totalitarian system of control, domination, I think. Um, and Larry Fink comes in the middle of that. You know, earlier on, you mentioned um, um, environmental, social and corporate governance criteria. And I, I think the reason he did that is because there's, there was a, there was a um, I mean, every, every time that guy opens his mouth, the world kind of, kind of takes a sharp intake of breath because he's so powerful, doesn't he? But there was a, there was a, a, some footage going around of him talking about imposing um, basically the tenets of woke ideology on all these companies. People are wondering at the moment why every company in the West, every state, every municipal authority, every civic, civil institution, every government, every business is celebrating Pride Month. I mean, Christ. When I was younger, Pride used to go for a weekend or a day. <laughs> now it's a whole month, um, and of course, it's no longer just Pride. It's 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 the kind of it's it's the, the idea of the orthodoxies of so-called trans rights, trans orthodoxies, and so on, um, which I'm extremely opposed to. <clears throat> um, and people are kind of wondering why is this so? Why why is why is why is this thing suddenly become from a uh, a marginal celebrational so, or a, a small celebration? Um, about trying to recognize and incorporate um, gay, lesbian, and bisexual people um, into, I guess, the, heter the heterosexual world, and to challenge countries where it, you know, it's not legal to be gay or whatever. How has that suddenly we got this vast, enormous institutional, corporate, and governmental backing? And the reason, the very simple reason, as that video revealed, is environmental, social, and corporate governance criteria. Um, you know, I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. The BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street Global Advisor um, have, between them, on average, 20% of the voting rights of the, what is it, the 500 most powerful uh, companies on the New York Stock Exchange. And it's been described as them having something like state power over those companies. Um, and, you know, in that footage, Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, obviously, um, said, you know, we need to enforce, use mechanisms to enforce um, all companies to adopt the same um, principles. And that's not just about um, how they promote themselves um, or who they employ or that they have a certain criteria of staff and stuff. Um, it's also about far more serious things like where they invest their money, what criteria they have to meet before they receive um, uh, you know, loans from banks or so on and so forth. Um, <clears throat> in other words, they're using the ESG criteria both to promote um, these new ideologies of woke. And we talked earlier on, I kind of mentioned earlier on, how they're being used to enforce, um, you know, uh, draconian measures which remove our human rights. But they're also being used to um, enforce social development goals. And that's that's kind of another conversation, which maybe we can have at another time, um, which are basically about um, exporting debt, social development goals, uh, sorry, sustainable development goals are about exporting debt to developing countries. Um, but you're right, he's very open that the kind of mess that the global financial sector is in, uh, you know, most people don't know that there was a, uh, a huge um, crash, if you like, um, in September 2019, um, that it's easier to run a financial sector with a fiat economy 
And there's vast quantity, you know, there's vast quantitative easing programs that they're using to kind of bail out the financial sector across the West. It's much easier to manage that when you've got absolute control over the use of money. And the other, the other great um, uh, champion, if you like, of a totalitarian system is um, Larry Fink's kind of counterpart. He's not as powerful as him, but he's, he's, he's very, very influential. And that's um, the director of the Bank of International Settlements, Augustine Carston, who I talk about in this. Um, recently, I, I wrote a long article um, um, about central bank digital currency. And in it, um, Carston says very kind of like a parallel with Fink, when Fink's talking about, he's not quite sure what's going on in the Middle East. It's more, it's more about North Africa, wasn't it? Because this was just before, um, you know, what happened in Libya, with Libya threatening to take Africa off, um, uh, you know, the US dollar as the kind of the reserve currency of the world. And he found out what happens when any country tries to do that. Um, that's what that invasion was, and it was about. Um, in a similar way, Augustine Carstens talked about, we don't know what's going on when people are using dollars, when they're using cash. And he says, when central banks have absolute control and the mechanisms for actual control over digital currencies, then our expression of their liability, of central bank liability, is within their, their remit. You know, money is a promissory note from a bank. Every note we use in this country says, um, I promise to pay the bearer, you know, so-and-so amount on, on demand. When central bank digital currency is the only form of currency in circulation and that's definitely what it's going to be um, and it is programmed with mechanisms um, of compliance that is you have to meet certain criteria if your expression of central bank liability doesn't accord with what they want they then have the mechanisms to stop you using it or stop using it to so much they can control what you uh, what we spend it on and that's the way that things like um, the allocated share of butter or oil or petrol or meat or lamb or whatever is going to be controlled. We're not going to have, um, you know, the Stasi bursting into our room and kind of rifling through our fridge through a central bank digital currency. They're going to have complete control over that. Um, so, yeah, um, this again is to go back why I find this kind of ludicrous to describe this as a form of communism. This is advanced finance capitalism. Um, and the people running it, the people who, there's no individuals running it, but central bank digital currency and the kind of extraordinary levels of monopoly which um, Hayek wonders about in his book that something like BlackRock, an institution like BlackRock has. The, those levels of absolute control, we have to think about those in different terms to simply reducing them to a form of communism. That is not the way they're working. They're working within a system of global finance. And it is a totalitarian system which draws comparison, maybe in its effects, with totalitarian systems of the past, which are very much state-run, but that's not how they work. It's not how they function. It's not where their mechanisms of totalitarianization are. They're working within a finance model. And I think it's very important that we try to understand, I think we are beginning to understand, those of us who are opposed to this, how this, what I call in my book, this new totalitarianism is going to work. The state is merely going to be the implementer of these mechanisms, these programs, and these technologies, but the control of them is not going to be within the remit of the state. It's going to be within the masters of the universe. Remember they called them that back in the 80s, didn't they? Like Larry Fink, and like Augustine Carstens, and like the heads of the other um, central banks around the world. Well, the striking thing about that, the, the quote you're referring to was the one we actually put on the news, and the striking thing about it was the coercion. 
It was all about coercion. There was nothing about freedom. There was no free market. It was, you will be made to comply. So although this is allegedly someone from well, the capitalist world, it was every bit as authoritarian, every bit as dictatorial, as a Stalin-like figure from um, you know, a generation ago. Um, and uh, it, it, it showed um, a, an opposition to things like individual liberty, personal choice. These are the ideas that it, it treats with contempt. Um, at, the, at the end of your book, uh, you've got a chapter called Humanity in Dark Times. Now, by dark times, again, you're quoting Har uh, Hannah Arendt, um, you, you explain what you mean by dark times. Uh, those periods in history in which the world becomes so obscured in darkness that people cease to ask any more of politics than it guarantee their individual freedom and survival, um, a demand that precisely describes their own time. Right. And, and you're then looking at um, you're, you're looking at resistance and you're looking at, uh, at at friendship and personal relationships and building something that is more real, that is more genuine than this huge false system that we're laboring under. Um, and uh, how much how much sign of optimism do you see? That, that those ideas are on the rise? That's a very difficult question to answer. Um, I'm an optimist because, as I've said in <laughs> many, many times, pessimism is a indulgence which you pay to the future. And um, when you're in that future, you can never pay it off. So I'll have no truck with pessimism. Um, there's that Catholic notion, isn't it, of the long, the long defeat, fighting the long defeat. And if you, even if you know you're going to lose, um, it's better to be uh, in resistance to tyranny, totalitarianism, evil, if you like. Um, I, think, I think there are reasons for hope, um, and there are a number of them. Um, you know, Arendt writes that the ultimate, I think, aim of a totalitarian system is to render human beings redundant to the successful functioning of that system. And I think a lot of the programs, or I know a lot of the programs and technologies, um, not only of the global biosecurity state, but of the fourth industrial revolution, are about making us redundant to its functioning. You know, I wrote an article recently called um, Why You Should, get, why you should uh, get Rid of Your Smartphone Now. Um, you know, I watch people with smartphones and um, they're not using them. They're simply the organic <laughs> attachment to the smartphone that allows it to replicate. Um, you know, we are the battery that goes into it, not the other way around. Um, and I think there is a growing awareness and fear um, about this huge new wave of technologies that are coming in, like AI, like um, the system of surveillance, which is going to impose 15-minute cities on us, like smartphones, which issue emergency warnings when the temperature goes above 32 degrees and instruct you, according to the government, to stop what you're doing and obey orders. That's exactly what they say. Um, and far worse technologies like that. You know, I, I keep on going back to central bank digital currency or a system of digital ID. Um, the World Health Organization has 
just announced that they're going to launch the what's it called the digital health verification or certification network i think they called it they keep changing the names of it i don't know but there's all these programs and all these um uh, technologies are coming in which are specifically going to render human beings redundant to the functioning of our societies we don't need a government we don't need a legislature we don't need a judiciary if everything that we do is being monitored surveyed um controlled and ultimately punished um, within a punitive context by something like central bank digital currency, by um, the system of surveillance, which is going to enforce 15-minute cities, like the uh, systems of monitoring, which are going to um, uh, oversee how much food we eat, how much beef we consume, how much oil we, we use and so on, or, or whether we travel around. And of course, what we do on these on these computers and laptops and phones and so on. Um, so that definitely, I think, is um, a realization coming through in ways in which he probably couldn't have imagined of Arendt's definition of totalitarianism. And I think there is a reaction to that. Um, I'm finding myself, which I never thought I would, sort of turning into a bit of a humanist. Um, Partly that's because I'm terrified of what's going to happen, but also seeing the people, seeing how people are reacting to this. Um, I don't think humans, I don't think any species is keen on seeing itself being made redundant or ultimately being made um, uh, or being wiped out. Um, I've been looking recently more and more at the, the goals of Agenda 2030 and ultimately beyond that in 2050 of net zero. and. If we look at the example of Sri Lanka, which in April 2021, it started imposing um, uh, the, uh, the agenda 20 or net zero um, um, to, uh, sorry, um, policies to its agriculture. You know, Sri Lanka was known as the, the rice bowl of the East. And within a year, uh, the country was in ruins. It was defaulted on its debts. Uh, inflation got up to 54%. Um, rice production had fallen to sort of, you know, by 80% or something like that. Prices had gone up, God knows how much. And eventually they actually overthrew the government. And that was in one year and only imposing these policies um, for what, uh, within our agriculture. In my opinion, Agenda 2030 and beyond that net zero is a genocidal project. And it will kill, if it goes ahead, hundreds of millions of people and impoverish and, and, and um, create hunger in billions more. That seems to me absolutely clear. I don't know how you can kind of contest that. As people become aware of this, I think as human beings become aware of this, not just people, but human beings, I think there is a reaction happening to this. I think more and more of us are missing as it's disappearing. Because you always, you always miss something as it's disappearing, don't you? You don't know what you've got till it's gone, as uh, what's the name saying? Um, we're missing our humanity, our community with each other. We don't see each other as much as we did. You know, a few years ago, I mean, I'm glad that we can have this conversation if you're up in, um, in Scotland and I'm down in, in, in London. Um, but it's not very often nowadays that I have these meetings with other human beings in the same room. You know, we're doing everything online. Uh, people don't go out as much as they do. And I think there is a reaction to that. So I think the reassertion of our humanity and the other things which are contingent upon that, because humanity isn't just simply an abstract concept, like our freedoms and our community with each other, which I think we've been missing in the West for a very long time, I think they are asserting themselves. The problem is the kind of technologies which I keep talking about, we've been talking about in this discussion, 
they won't be contingent as they were before under lockdown, under the COVID fear-mongering, on us believing what we're being told. It won't be dependent on propaganda anymore. We will be living within a digital camp. And in a camp, it doesn't matter whether you, <laughs> you disagree with the guards or the commandant because they've got complete control over you. So to go back to what I said before, it's very important that we start recognizing and defending and recovering our humanity and our sense of community with each other very, uh, very soon. You know, you mentioned in my last chapter, I talk about the politics of friendship. Um, I've said this before, but I'll say it again. <clears throat> friendship has been and is still under relentless attack um, across the West. Our friendship with each other, uh, our bonds of family are under specific attack, particularly by woke ideology. It's quite clear that the family unit as the kind of building block of society is um, definitely being uh, under attack. Our children are being taken into, I think. I think the kind of obscenity is being done to children, um, you know, getting literally infants and exposing them to male strippers and stuff is, I can't imagine it's being done for any other reason than to force, to encourage parents to start taking children out of the schools. And I think that itself will justify the state um, passing new legislations which effectively take children into the control of the state um, from the moment they're born. I think there is a kind of um, a drive towards that. And that, again, is a very totalitarian idea that the human being, um, the parents aren't the ultimate source of authority over their children, <laughs> their own children, but the children are actually the property of the state. And there seems to be a drive, that seems to be me, me, where, um, uh, where trans orthodoxies are going towards. Um, these are all transhuman, not merely idea, um, technologies and programs, they're transhuman ideologies. I hope, I continue to believe, and I'm optimistic, that the human being will you know, reject this and resist it and ultimately overthrow it. Um, you know, we've talked about this before, David. Um, the people in power are never as powerful as they think. They are still there in power because we allow them to occupy that place. And we keep obeying and we keep voting for them and we keep believing all the lies they tell. Um, I'm an optimist that the human being will reassert itself. The downside of that is <clears throat> it might not happen in your and my lifetime. Um, and what they're doing to our children, um, it might take a while before human beings do reassert themselves. It might be in 100 years. It might be later. It's kind of what my book on poetry that you mentioned at the beginning uh, is about. It's about defending the values of freedom, if not for us, for the future. And... You know, we shouldn't simply be fighting for ourselves. We might have lost this battle. Um, I'm not saying we have. We're in the middle of it, and we're definitely losing it. But the war is a long one, uh, and we have to think not just for ourselves but for the future and try and keep those values um, alive for the future when people will start belling against this because we're getting very close to the edge at the moment. We're getting very close to the abyss. Um, recently I did a presentation called The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And those four horsemen were digital ID, central bank digital currency, Agenda 2030, and the World Health Organization's pandemic treaty. I could add another one, which of course is what is going on in Ukraine, but I think that's the product of those four. Those four horsemen are right on the edge of appearing in our world. It's funny, like you mentioned the um, revelations on, uh, before, and I went back to revelations because I was using this, this kind of metaphor of the four horsemen. And the four horsemen of the apocalypse, they come, what were they? They come with uh, war, 
with conquest, uh, with the law, uh, with famine, and with the economy, don't they? There's one with the scales as well. And it's strange that, I mean, the book of Revelation was written about 90 AD, wasn't it? Um, but all these thousands of years later, the means by which the powerful control us is still the same. It's through money, it's through law, it's through war, and it's through famine. And that's what we're facing at the moment. <laughs> the common um, shorthand for the four horse, horsemen of apocalypse is, of course, wrong, because uh, it's normally quoted as being um, uh, war, pestilence, death, and famine. But pestilence and death is the same horse. Uh, the, the white horse is the interesting one. Right? The white horse has got someone that looks like Christ on it. So the white horse is falsehood, false belief, lies, uh, a false religion, a false understanding. And that's the one that comes first. So the ideas that we're fighting here, um, we're, 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 we're fighting lies and, and, and the truth will set you free. We're fighting lies and the lies can only succeed if they are not challenged, because ultimately, who would who would uh, endorse the sort of genocidal policies that you've described? Well, no one would. So the 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 they're put through on a on a bed of lies, um, and using fear because you have to vote for this, you have to support this, or we're all doomed. Using fear as a weapon, lies as a cover. Uh, the, the 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 falsehoods are are one after another imposed on us, and it's that particular aspect of the white horse that I think we should be we should be most ready to fight against, because that's the first one, that's the most important one. Um, it's what you believe, it's what you understand, it's what you think, and what you have the courage to say. Uh, that uh, makes all the difference. In your conclusion to your book, you quote uh, Milton Meyer uh, from his book, They Thought They Were Free, the Germans in 1933-45, and talking about the gradual imposition of totalitarianism. And he says, the world you live in, the na your nation, your people, is not the world you were born in at all. The forms are all there, all untouched, all reassuring. The houses, the shops, the jobs, the meal times, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, is changed. Now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, no one is transformed. Now, that describes the world in 2020, I think, amazingly well. I think there are, there are signs for hope because it describes the world of 2023 much less well. Um, the, here and there, um, there, are, there are signs of hope, there are signs of people marshalling their thoughts, marshalling their arguments, clearing their heads. And... Um, You've been foremost amongst them. So for that, and until next time, Simon, thank you very much. <laughs>